This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Death by Incarceration presents, in association with Crawl Space Media, Injustice, a new wrongful conviction podcast with a focus on advocacy. Emmanuel Rios and Angel Rodriguez are each serving life sentences for the 1987 murder of Sean Nelson, despite the existence of evidence that could have cleared them had it not been withheld at their trial. Now that our production team has obtained that previously lost evidence, will it be enough to right an injustice of more than 30 years? It's crazy because there's a confession. (laughs) There's a confession. He did confess. It's recorded. It's on a tape. Injustice. Sunday, September 7th, 1987. At approximately 12.45 a.m., a man named William Cripple leaves the Philadelphia Electric Company building. Traveling down Fisher Lane, a.k.a. Snake Hill Road, on his way home for the night, his attention is caught by a single headlight of a motorcycle on the side of the road. As he looks closer he notices that there is a person in a red helmet straddling the motorcycle, standing over what appears to be a body on the side of the road. So he pulls over. As he does, the motorcycle speeds away. Spoiler alert, that motorcycle will never make another appearance in this story. So for those of you keeping score at home, with your bulletin board with thumbtacks and strings and tracking all the clues along the way, this one is unimportant, other than the fact that it initially drew his attention. So Cripple pulls to the side of the road, gets out, checks the body for signs of life. Detecting no pulse, he radios the electric company dispatch to place a call to the police. Moments later, United cab driver William Graver, having just dropped a fare in the area, arrives on scene. They both stay until police show in order to give their statements. 12.50 a.m., Officer Kevin McDevitt receives a call of a dead body. 1 a.m., fire and rescue arrive, tend to the young man on the side of the road. They remove his hat, Check for head wounds, which they do find. Check his torso for additional wounds, finding none. They attach heart monitors and can find no signs of life. Sean Nelson is pronounced dead on the scene. 1.55 a.m., crime scene unit shows up, and at approximately 2 a.m., they take a total of 10 photographs of the scene and the body. A combination of overall shots of the street showing the location and position of the body, as well as a few close-ups. 325. Officer John Keene transports Nelson to the medical examiner's office. Now, what I just read to you are objective facts of this case. There is no denying any of those statements. A lot of the other substance of this case is ambiguous at best, but today we focus on facts, or as close to them as we can come. So those things all happen between 1245 and 325. But what happened leading up to the moments that William Cripple first arrived on scene. It will be a week or so before the autopsy is performed, so we'll get to that in a bit, but 
In keeping with our chronological as possible timeline, we're going to start by discussing witness statements to the police. Let's get into it. We take you back to the Badlands of Philadelphia, circa 1987. You know, everybody was saying, you know, Sean was last seen with romance because that particular day when we was outside, it was people outside. You can, I mean, for people that knew how Ethan Butler was, it was, it was like a rock concert out there during them days. At any given time, you had a whole bunch of cars pulling up, people jumping out. So it's not like we was just out there and it was just us. There was a multitude of different people that were out there that day. And people were sitting on it. As we walked down 9th Street, people were sitting on their steps, sitting on their porches, people walking past because of how vibrant the neighborhood was at that time with a multitude of different people just floating around and driving around. Welcome back to the show. Episode 3. I am Spencer Daniels. With me, as always, is Lisa Spees. Hi, Lisa. Hello. And this is Injustice. Let's talk about witnesses. Eyewitnesses can be undeniably inaccurate. People don't pay attention to what time it is they saw someone, for instance. Now, these interviews took place anywhere ranging from the day after the murder to two months later. Now, I will tell you right now, I wouldn't remember the details of an interaction I had two months ago. I would make a terrible witness. So understandably, some of the details aren't exact. Timelines, for instance. But for the most part, they paint a pretty clear picture. So Lisa, talk to me about eyewitness reliability. According to the Innocence Project, mistaken eyewitness identifications have contributed to approximately 69% of the more than 375 wrongful convictions in the United States that were overturned by post-conviction DNA evidence. However, this case is different in that many of the witnesses knew each other prior to the events of September 7, 1987. So the accuracy overall would most likely be much higher, while exact times might be slightly off. As we brought up in the previous episode, anytime something like this would go down in the neighborhood, the police would roll out and round up all the usual suspects. Now, Ethan Butler was more than just one thing. Yes, it, it was a hub of drug enterprise and criminal activity. Think The Wire from HBO. And that was Baltimore. This is Philadelphia. But very much the same the same aesthetic. It was an open-air, recreational drug market all day, every day. But it was also a community. And you can hear that in the way Mikhail Muhammad, whose voice you heard a moment ago, talks about the neighborhood. He was one of the witnesses. So the usual suspects turned out, most time, to be friends. Like Lisa said, they all knew each other. And we could go through and give you a rundown on what each of them had to say, but we'll instead... What we'll say is this, that the, the witness statements mostly paint a similar portrait of what went on the night Sean was killed. Both he and Romance's movements can be traced. Now, as Sean moved about the day, the evening, and late into the night, he encountered a number of his friends sitting on the steps of the drugstore for a bit, heading to the store for a soda. There's an exchange where he's trying to round up money. The majority of the stories all end the same, with Sean last seen driving off in the passenger seat of Romance's two-tone brown and beige car, the big speakers in the back. One of the statements that is different is that of Flacco, Orlando Gonzalez. 
Flacco's statements seem to be inconsistent with almost all other testimony. And here's how he got involved. Well, here's, here's what June had to say about Flacco's involvement the night of the murder. So I got a, a, another friend of mine who was uh, standing around. He's from the area. I, I grew up with him. I said, hey, jump in the car with me. Let's go somewhere. So we go, and we sure enough, we see police. So this guy who was with me in the car, who I took in the car with me, he winds up getting questioned because at that time, police were questioning everybody who was uh, involved in the drug trade in the 8th and Butler. So this guy tells the cops that I took him to this location. So the cops, they interview me. So when they interview me, I denied that I knew anything. But I could tell by their line, I could tell by their line of questioning that they're saying, you know, that I was part of this, uh, this murder. He tells the story where June drove him to the crime scene the night of. That's what June was talking about in the clip we just heard. He also tells police that June came back the following night, Monday, and again drove him to the scene of the crime. That's where he claims June confided in him. Gonzalez told the police, quote, June told me, Flacco, I gotta tell you something. Me and Roe were going to do it, but Roe told me not to, not to get involved. Roe came by himself with Sean and killed him, end quote. Now, he's still saying that romance is responsible, but his story is just so much different than anyone else's. Flacco's odd statement aside, we get a picture of 8th and Butler. People from the neighborhood all know that Romance and Sean are working together selling drugs. We also learn the money that Sean is trying to raise that night is so he can meet up with Baby Rock to score what is obviously a large amount of coke. And also that though he won't tell anyone why, he does note that he had to meet up with Romance later that night to do something big. He says those exact words to a handful of people, but when they ask what that big thing is, he won't say. And yet, people saw Sean with romance as little as 30 minutes prior to his murder. Michael Devon is the person he hit up for cash. Devon gave him everything he had in his pocket, about $750. He noted that Sean had about $1,000 of his own and that he then ran quickly down the street and came back with what he described as a whole lot of money. Stacks of hundreds, fifties, twenties, couldn't even tell you how much that was. It should also be noted that when police found Sean, he had less than $100 on him. So, all these witnesses and all these interviews, I think it was 11, 10, 10 or 11, different elements of each statement contradict the state's entire case. Now, four of them placed Sean Nelson in Romance's car at or near the time of the murder that night. Five of them establish a meeting of some sort was planned between Sean and Romance that night. Five, that they dealt drugs together, with Sean working for Romance. And most importantly, five of them were either with Sean almost up to the moment when he got into Romance's car, were with Sean after the alleged kidnapping would have had to have occurred, or were at the exact spot the alleged kidnapping occurred. There is no way the van story could have possibly happened. Now, speaking of the van, as you might expect with a case like this, a lot has happened since the trial in 1989. In 2001, June hired a private investigator 
who spoke with a gentleman named Martin Strom. Strom was a friend of theirs who would just, well, let's let June tell us. You have to know, too, right before the trial, Spanky's lawyer, he was, he was the lawyer that actually procured a private investigator. He tried to track down, because he's, Romance said this murder happened in a van. So we tried to track down a guy who actually had the van at the time, and we couldn't find him. In 2001, I hired a private investigator, and he tracked him down, and he gave a statement. He said, no, on the night of the murder, the murder victim came to my house looking for some weed. It was around 11-something at night. He said, I had the van because he had just got separated from his wife, and his wife had taken all the furniture, and the next day, he was going to go purchase furniture. So he said, back, remember back in the day, so we had the, the cl- remember the clubs, Kev, you put on your steering yeah. wheel and the brakes? So the, yeah. Yeah. He, said, he, he said, I put my club on the van, so I know nobody took the van. I have possession of that van on this, on the night this murder supposedly happened in this van. So this guy was not available to be questioned by police. He was never contacted by the district attorney, obviously, but the defense team couldn't find him. Had he been called to the stand, his testimony alone completely messes the prosecution's whole theory. Nobody talked to him until 11 years later. And now we get to Brooke Holmes. Brooke was Romance's girlfriend at the time this all went down. And we spoke to her just last week. My name is Brooke Holmes. I'm from Hunter Park. I was introduced to Romance um, when I was about 15. And we had a relationship together. And that's where I'm at, Sean. What do you What do you remember about? Um, I guess it was Labor Day weekend, 1987, the weekend or the the night that Sean was killed. Uh, I remember that um, me and Romance was in a car, and he uh, talked to Sean, and he told Sean that he was going to uh, come back and pick him up, and he went to, and he went to drop me off, and then. I guess that's when we heard, like, about, I don't know if it was the next day or two days later that Sean was killed. So Brooke gave a statement to the police where she, at first, seemed to maybe alibi romance. An interesting side note, Brooke's mother had been made romance's legal guardian, and he was living with them. And that detail will make sense in a moment. So our original working theory was that, one... We didn't believe the totality of Brooke's story. Do you know how they say the more detailed and complicated the story, the greater chance that it's not true? So she tells this meandering story, accounting for time at every step. 15 minutes looking for food. They drive home, 10 minutes looking for parking. She checked the refrigerator at home. Then 15 minutes playing video games and then going to bed. It was just, it was oddly specific. And should be noted, that timeline conveniently extends to just after 12.15, Sean Nelson's time of death. So we assumed that there was just something wrong with the timeline. We'll pick it up on the other side of this break as we listen to a word from today's sponsors. All I know was they were all friends and they all like worked together down Butler Street. I didn't know. I didn't ever hear any problems or anything. For the most part, I thought that Romance and Sean was very close. 
we we have a we have a copy of the taped confession where he says okay. that he he killed Sean. He says it was an accident. He just pulled out the gun, but he says that he did it. So you weren't aware right. of that? Well, I was aware that he had got locked up for it, but he never told me the story. I I heard things in the neighborhood, but yeah. and then everybody was saying their roommates did it, but I I never like asked him, and I didn't know like. But I know he, the police came to my house and locked him up and locked my mother up. And I felt so let down by him. The first person that I heard him say something about it was um, his friend, Vincent. And he's also the person who came and told us, tell me and Romance that Sean was had been killed. But when Romance left, Vincent came back around to talk to me. And he told me that everybody was seeing it. Romance had something to do with it. The statement that you made, you had originally said that, that Romance was in a car with you and your four-year-old nephew, Corey, and you guys were driving around. But then there was a, a change to that where it was you and Corey driving around and then you you picked up Romance later. Is... Well, um, yeah, the, the detective told me to change that because he was saying that the time wasn't right. But in all reality, I was driving with my nephew, and we did pick him up. We picked Romance up. But he made me switch it because he said the time that I said I picked him up wasn't the right time. It was it was approximately uh, about a week and a half later that I had to change the statement. Would it be fair to say that he pressured you to, to change your, your statement? He was, he said, listen, yeah, um, the story doesn't add up. The times are not right. And you had, you had to change that. Okay. Do you recall a conversation that you had with Romance the day after the murder? Yes. I was try, I tried to ask him what, what I was told by Vincent. And he told me it was a lie. And I said, you know, everybody seen that you had something to do with it. And he was like, he said, Brooke, that's a lie. And you know the thing that was um, that I found was weird when he when Vincent came to tell Romance what had happened, he went straight to the bathroom and spit up. Romance did, yeah. And I was, you know, I was, I thought that was a weird reaction. I just thought it was weird because, like, I felt bad, but I didn't spit up. You know, and I never, I never reacted that way when anybody that I know was killed. Yeah. I never, like, something turned his stomach, and I, then that's what led me to believe what um, Benson was saying was true. But I didn't get the details. Like, I don't know if it was an accident, or I just know that Sean was not there anymore. So, um. After the murder, or I guess after that night, did romance seem upset or or shook by the murder? Yeah, he, he seemed on edge. Like he sat in one day, he sat in the living room, in the dark, 
with a hoodie on and my mom came in and said what's wrong with you like why are you sitting here in the dark and then he does act strange for until the detectives came and locked him up he he was acting strange he didn't want to go nowhere he said somebody was looking for him and that made me say, like, listen, you got to get out of here. You can't be at my mom's house and somebody looking for you, you know? Here's the second point. Even if you did buy that romance was with Brooke and all that stuff happened on that whole timeline, the food, the parking, the refrigerator, the video games, romance would have had to have slipped out after she went to sleep. And most of the interviews put Sean on the street at around 11 or 12. So Romance leaves Brooks, drives down to 8th and Butler, picks up Sean. They drive out to Snake Hill Road. Sean gets shot. Romance goes back down to 8th and Butler. He sees June, shows him the blood in the car. June grabs Orlando. They head back to where Romance says it happened. They see the police crime scene. That is, it's just a lot. And again, the timeline. But now, in Brooks' conversation with us, she clearly says two very important things. She and Romance were driving around, see Sean. Sean and Romance make plans to meet later. And then, and here's the aha moment, she says Romance dropped her off and then must have gone back to meet Sean. No food, no video games. She just cleared Romance's schedule for the whole night. And the second thing she said is that the detectives told her later to change her timeline, to change her story, because the times she gave didn't work. Now also, the story she tells about their friend Vincent coming over to the house to break the news about Sean's death, and Romance gets sick, I mean, that's guilt punching him in the stomach, right? I mean, to have that kind of visceral reaction to hearing that news, I mean, they were friends after all. And if, like Romance said in his confession, it was an accident, then of course he's going to have that kind of reaction. Lisa, what, what are your thoughts on that? To be honest, I didn't really give much weight to Romance's story that Sean was accidentally shot. Now hearing that Romance became physically ill after hearing from Vincent that the word on the street was that he had been involved, this seems to be very telling. And it corroborates the other stories that Romance told other witnesses about the, the shooting being accidental. Uh, wrapping up with Brooke now. June and Spanky are both decent people. Like, But um, as far as a, like a stand-up citizen, like June, he will help anybody. And he, like, he is not the type to go around and wreak havoc. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a shame that June has been here that long because so everybody that he, he was nice to all those people around here for that long, you know? And it's just a shame. It's just a shame because their neighborhood, period, is just, it's nothing but death and destruction. And I'm going to tell you, it, it, that, it, that what happened had a lot to do with voodoo and stuff, too. Like the around here is is really bad. You can't imagine some of the things that people do in order to just to live. And, but he wasn't one of those people. Like 
the drugs, I guess you, I guess somebody who doesn't come from that neighborhood would say, oh, I will never sell drugs. But let me tell you something. When you see the amount and how easy it was around here, that's that's the, that's why people fell into the trap. But other than that, even Romans, he's not a bad person. They're not they're not bad people. It was just uh, like circumstances. Sean either. Sean, I, and that's what I'm saying. He would. Sean wouldn't even. I don't know what could have what he could have done to because they were all friends. You know what I'm saying? They were all friends. Yeah, I th- I think the 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 one missing piece to all of this that we're you know we're still kind of hoping for is that romance will agree to talk to us because all I mean all, all that really needs to happen is for him to come and um, confirm the tape that he made the confession and it would probably be enough to at least get those guys a new trial if not to fully exonerate them and and bring them home so they can be with their families. You know, I just if if he would come forward, he could he could help him out. So that that picture that Brooke paints of Ethan Butler in the eighties, we were there earlier this year, and honestly, not a lot has changed. So we drove through, and I think it was called it's the Kensington neighborhood, and it it was shocking the 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 deprivation there. What did you think, Lisa? What I saw while we were driving through Kensington was unlike anything I've ever seen. It almost felt wild, like anything goes. You know, people were selling drugs and shooting up on the street and police officers would be standing and leaning against their cars on the same block. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Now, admittedly, there are a couple of things that we missed at the time we interviewed Brooke. And so, Lisa, you you followed up with Brooke for some clarification. Explain what you picked up on and then what has happened with Brooke since our conversation. So first, we've already talked about the fact that Sean had a significant amount of money, several thousand dollars with him when he got in the car with Romance that night. And I was curious if Brooke knew anything about Romance having any extra money after the murder occurred. And she said she didn't know anything about that. Um, She's told us that she was unaware of much of Romance's criminal activity. And so I I tend to believe that. Um, Second, during the interview with Spencer and I, Brooke made a comment about Romance dropping her and her nephew off at the house after they had all drove around for a bit. Um, that to me made it sound like romance dropped them and then kept going and went back to meet with Sean. So I wanted to clarify with Brooke on whether or not she knew if romance went back out that night. And she stuck to the story that she gave to police that she went to sleep and didn't know if romance had gone back out, which contradicts what she told us in our interview. Yeah, and to be clear, it it would be disingenuous to say that we thought Brooke was being dishonest or misleading. I, I think that this is her truth. She wasn't aware of Romance's illegal dealings, or maybe she was, but she didn't want to admit it or accept it. It's hard to say. 
what I will say is that the inconsistencies in her story are such that they are at least worthy of another look by someone much smarter than me. Um, so that was a little leap ahead to present day. But for now, we're still in 1987 in the police investigation. So let's talk about evidence. And this will be a short segment. There's next to nothing here. So the, the burden is on prosecution. We all know the whole innocent until proven guilty in the court of law thing. We all learn from Dick Wolf television shows. But let me be very clear here. No reasonable person should be able to listen to the evidence, or lack thereof, and believe beyond a reasonable doubt that Emmanuel Rios and Angel Rodriguez could have done this. Like, objectively, the science does not support it at all. According to the medical examiner, the trajectory of the single bullet that killed Sean entered the left side of his head, exited the right, with little to no upward or downward deviation. I mean, almost exactly where it entered, it exited on the opposing side. There was no angle. The gun barrel was in firm contact with his head, created a contact wound with a straight through-and-through trajectory. Now, that right there coincides with MacArthur's confession that he shot Sean while driving. You think about it. Driver's seat, passenger seat, driver lifts gun and shoots the passenger where he sits. Conversely, it completely unravels MacArthur's fabricated testimony of a struggle in the back of the van. Now, according to the testimony, June was supposed to be holding Sean down the whole time until the van stopped. Spanky then gets up, comes to the back. June and Spanky switch places. Spanky pulls Sean out the door of the van, well, halfway out. But I'm sorry, that's just not a struggle. That's a fucking fight for his life. Sean didn't have so much as a scratch. No bruises, no abrasions, no anything. In fact, I think the most telling thing about Sean is that when they found him, he still had his hat on. Now tell me that could have been possible after tussling with at least two men trying to kill him. It couldn't have been. Full stop. Additionally, while we're talking about the crime scene, for the murder to have happened as MacArthur testified... Picture this. A body hanging halfway out the back of the van. That's what, two feet above the ground? And sorry to be too graphic, but if Nelson had been shot at that height, there would have been blood spatter, brain fragments, skull fragments, a pool of blood, none of which was present. The responding officer, Officer McDevitt, noted blood across Nelson's face and a blood stain about one foot from his head, which I think points to the body being dumped after the fact. Also, there's the blood stain on Sean's shirt. If he was lying down in the van, I'm sorry, that's just not how gravity works. He had to have been sitting upright. Uh, Lisa, I want to dive into the crime scene a little bit more, but is there anything I missed? The only thing our listeners really need to know is that the autopsy report proves that Romance MacArthur's testimony is false. Romance lied to the jury. 
Yeah, and I, I don't understand why the car wasn't absolutely torn through. Like, the police had it at the impound lot at some point. Like, that came up in Romance's confession to Peruto. The fact that so many people place Sean in that car so close to his time of death, you'd think that would warrant a full-blown rip-it-apart, tear-it-down-to-the-frame. What they did was a visual inspection, lacking any forensics. The search warrant for the car that was obtained five days after the murder indicated they were looking for bullets, shell casings, a twenty-five caliber gun. It was later to be determined that it was a three eighty that killed him, but I think they initially thought it was a twenty-five. Uh, blood or any other evidence. They took four photographs of the car. Two of the exterior, two of the interior. They took fingerprints off the door handles and quarter panels, as well as interior door handles, cassette tapes, glove box. Otherwise, like I said, it was a visual inspection. Two things the listeners need to know. There is 0% chance there wasn't some blood in that car. Here's what I want to know. Was the window open when Sean was shot? We know the bullet went through and through. There's no discussion of broken glass. We know the bullet wasn't recovered from inside the car. So if the window was down, you'd think there'd be some blood spatter on the outside of the car? I mean, that could have been cleaned up in the fi- in five days, but you're telling me no blood hit the window and rolled down into the door? It ripped that thing apart. And second... The shell casing was recovered from inside the car by romance after they gave his car back. This is is so frustrating. First of all, Lisa, question for you. What the fuck? I I don't know if we can label this as incompetence. I mean, there's obviously details that we're still never going to know. But was this just the city of Philadelphia at that time? Or is there more to it? Like, how could this have been handled so poorly? Well, I think that, like we spoke about this neighborhood and this area of town before um, as being, you know, it's called the Badlands for a reason. Um, But crime was overwhelming there. I think the police were completely inundated by crime and trying to keep their head above water. I don't think that they obviously didn't do a very good job in this case. Um, stories about witnesses being pressured to change their statements and things kind of shows that they didn't have all good intentions, I would say. And I think also there are there is an element of this that could have been, you know, a no humans involved. You're we're talking about drug dealers and and, uh, you know, people with drug kingpins and whatnot. And I think that police maybe are were less inclined to do a great job because they really didn't consider them victims they didn't consider sean a victim and and that is exactly what he was absolutely um okay well we need to wrap up there uh next episode we'll get into roger king but i'll say this king's entire case even though romance macarthur was the prime suspect from the start king knew fully about the taped confession. He knew about each one of these witnesses and their, let's say, 
consistent inconsistencies, meaning they were all consistent with how inconsistent MacArthur's story was, not only does the crime scene and the evidence prove that the murder could not have happened as MacArthur testified, ADA Roger King knew full well it couldn't have, but pursued the case anyway, based on an obviously perjured testimony. Lisa, I'd say we're at about the halfway point unless something breaks in this case. Um, What's our call to action this week? Our call to action this week is we're asking you to sign the petition asking for justice on behalf of Emmanuel and Angel. You can find the link in our show notes or on our social media platforms. Yeah, and continue to share this. Uh, Subscribe, rate, review, do all the things. Let's get the word out and get these guys justice. That's it. That's the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Injustice Podcast is brought to you in association with Death by Incarceration. Thank you to Crawlspace Media. Sound design, audio post-production, Jason Usry. Special thanks for original music to Bernaldo Rivaldi. Check out all his great stuff on iTunes and Spotify, Bandcamp, wherever you get your music. Please support independent artists. Right now is a a real tough time for creatives. Go to InjusticePod.com for more information, including what are the great podcasts we are listening to. You can also find information to contact the hosts directly there. General inquiries can go to info at InjusticePod.com. Thank you for listening. This has been an Injustice Production. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.